and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny from Beijing, and I'm here with my co-host, David Moser. Greetings, Jeremiah. I probably wouldn't want to get out today because the traffic's uh, pretty bad, because uh, just for history's sake here, we're, we're having this podcast at the, at the historic plenary session of the CPC in Beijing this week. Yes, we're waiting for the spoke signals to emerge from central Beijing to let us know that some sort of <laughs> historical resolution has been, well, resolved and that we will find out if we are indeed as of tomorrow at around 10 a.m. in the middle of a new era. So rarely so, have you, I sorry, in a situation. You think there's going to be a new pope? Oh, I don't know, but there's <laughs> definitely going to be. I think Xi Jinping's going to have a few new titles, and a few new lines <laughs> on his CV. Not that he really needs any more lines on his CV. To kind of help make sense of all of this and also to talk a little bit today about the future of academic exchanges and China studies, we are so pleased to have with us a guest that we've wanted on the podcast for as long as we've had a podcast, uh, Maura Cunningham, uh, talking to us from Michigan. Am I right, Maura? Yes, I'm uh, in the early morning hours in Ann Arbor, Michigan right now. For those of you who are, a few of you who are unfamiliar with Maura's work, uh, Maura got her PhD from the University of California at Irvine. She's the author, our co-author with Jeffrey Wasserstrom of the book, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, which is one of my favorite recommendations for anyone coming to China. It's now in its third edition, um, which it, it's one of these books that anytime someone's coming here, I'm like, this is the book you have to read on the airplane over. It's, it's a brilliant book. She was also the editor-in-chief of China Beat. For those of you who are in the China blogosphere, remember China Beat, the associate editor of China Files. She's worked for the U.S., uh, the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And most recently, she's a digital media manager at the Association for Asians of Asian Studies. Maura, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I thought we could kind of jump right in. I want to talk a little bit about, and again, I've been, I've been kind of effusive in the praise for this book, but I do like this book. It's in its third edition. Now we're, we're in the middle of this plenary session. We're well entrenched in the Xi Jinping era. When you and Professor Wasserstrom go for edition number four, are there any amendments we're going to be needed for the, uh, post, for the post-COVID Xi new era of great rejuvenation? Absolutely. I think when or if Jeff and I ever have the chance to sit down and do a fourth edition, we're going to have quite a lot of work to do. But we've done that before. So for anyone not familiar with China in the 21st century, what everyone needs to know, it's a short book. It's published by Oxford University Press as part of a series called What Everyone Needs to Know. And these books are written in question and answer format. So they're supposed to be Fairly brief introductions, I think about 150 pages is our page count, um, to very broad topics. So uh, in the late 2000s, Jeff was approached by Oxford University Press to write this book. They thought that he would be the ideal candidate to introduce China in the 21st century to an American audience. It's, it's mostly written for an American audience, although we're fortunate to have readers all over the world and it's been translated into a couple of different languages. But uh, so Jeff wrote the first edition, I think that published in 2009. But then of course, the topic is the 21st century, which keeps happening around 
around us. So a few years later, Oxford came back to him and they said, the book is doing really well. We'd love to see you update it. And that's the point at which he brought me on um, as a contributing author. I was in graduate school at the time. Uh, Jeff was my dissertation advisor. And so we worked on updating the first edition, adding in some new questions and answers on topics that he hadn't um, covered as much in the first edition or that people had had asked about subsequently. And he realized these would be great questions to add. So we did a second edition, um, which was published, uh, I think we were writing it in 2012, um, just as the Xi Jinping uh, leadership transition was happening, in fact. And so we we were delayed in getting the manuscript in for a few weeks because we were like 99% certain that Xi Jinping was going to be named general secretary. But we just wanted to wait until it until it really happened to make sure since 2012 had been a weird year with Bo Lai and all that. And so, again, history keeps happening all around us. And so... By 2015, 2016, our editor at Oxford came back to us and he said, you know, book is still doing well. It's still selling strongly. It's being used, especially in a lot of study abroad programs. They were assigning it to students as like the pre-trip reading. Um, a lot of courses were using it as the, the first book in the class to kind of get, get reader or get students up to speed with China's history, politics, culture, economy, all that. In 2016, we started working on the third edition. And as soon as we started working, we realized a lot has changed. And the things that we wrote in 2012 are really no longer our take on the situation. They're no longer our analysis. I would say if you read the second edition and the third edition next to each other, both of us have gotten a lot more pessimistic on China. Um, and this was back in 2016. So as we'll talk about, I think things have changed even more since then. And so the third edition, we really rip the book apart and put it back together. We rewrote virtually every page. I think some of the early chapters on China's history maybe didn't get quite as much treatment, but we did a lot of work um, and it took us a considerable amount of time, much longer than we realized it would. We, we thought, you know, updating something for a third edition is pretty easy, but in fact, we really rewrote it and then rewrote that first draft again. So it, it, took, it took a lot of time, it took a lot of discussions to create the third edition because we really wanted to give an updated analysis on China, US-China relations, things like that. And so that book uh, was published in 2018. And again, a lot of things have happened since then. So yeah, Jeff and I have talked a few times about, you know, do we do we think that we could do a fourth edition? Um, both of us have a lot of other commitments and projects, and both of us are working on other books that we really need to finish, that both of us have book projects that we've been working on, again, longer than we anticipated. Uh, so, and we also need to talk to Oxford and see if they have interest in it. But if we do a fourth edition, yes, I think it will be, the process will be fairly similar to the third edition in that we're going to be really doing significant revisions, significant additions to reflect what has happened over the course of the past few years, um, both in China and in the United States. Because again, the book is, is mostly written 
from a U.S.-China relations perspective in the instances when it focuses on China and the world. Things are things are different in both countries. Well, it seems like you could revise the title to something like China in the 21st Century, What You Really, Really Need to Know. Yes. What, I, what I mean by that is that there's, there's a, this urgency now and a kind of an existential sort of feeling that that you know, China now is is not just uh, an interesting country that we ought to know more about. It's it's almost like we really need to know about them because they're because the consequences are going to be enormous. Do do you think? I assume you know. I, I sort of thought people reading this book would be interested students who are you know going to explore China for the first time, or maybe people who were uh, spouses of diplomats or something and they wanted to know a little more about the country. But now I, I think uh, I'm wondering who would actually be reaching in on the shelf to get this book because of because of the, the you know, the immediate news and the, and the uh, news stories on the press right now about what's happening in China. It seemed like that would be a challenge to revise the book. But from your standpoint, if you were going to just begin to take a pen to the book and revise it, what do you think the new thing, the, the new uh, standout points, the bullet points for the book would be in this era? Well, absolutely, COVID. Um, that would be mm-hmm. front and center as, you know, that's the number one topic that obviously wasn't covered in the previous edition and would need to be covered in a new edition. So we'd have to add quite a lot in there about the origin, you know, talking about um, the different theories of origins in China, the Chinese government's response, initial responses, how it handled the pandemic as it was unfolding, maybe talk about it in comparison with the SARS epidemic a few few decades, a few years earlier, not decades. Um, you could probably devote half the book to Xi Jinping now. <laughs> exactly, well, that, and that's my second point. And Xi Jinping is is a big player in the third edition as well. But yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I think the it would get more pessimistic from the third edition to a, a fourth edition, just in terms of all of the crackdowns that have been happening, um, especially over the past year talking about U.S.-China relations again and tumultuous experience of U.S.-China relations uh, first under the Trump administration and now as Biden is sort of stitching things back together, but not as much as I think I had anticipated and maybe some other people had anticipated. Um, so I, I think those are the the big topics would be talking about Xi Jinping and just his increasing exercise of power and how we're seeing that and how our understanding of China is changing because of what we're seeing. Well, we're happy to have you on board because we're here in Beijing and you're there. You're closer to the kind of question that we're trying to ask today, which is what's the new normal? What is going to be the new normal and what are the impl- impl- implications? I want to just before uh, before you, you dive into this, I just want to mention a, a really important study that was that was done uh, by Rory Truex, who's a professor at uh, politics and international affairs at Princeton, and his co-writer, Sheena Greitens. I guess she's also political science at the University of Missouri. A study called Repressive Experiences Among China Scholars, New Evidence from Survey Data. And I, I take it, I, you told me you were actually a participant in this survey. You took the survey yes, yourself? Yes, I, I responded yeah. to the survey. Right. Roy Truex is a very smart guy. And uh, and he has also come under, he's gotten a lot of press space these days talking about dealing with Chinese students and, and academic freedom. Uh, but I was really struck a few months ago, I think, tweeted, tweeted about it, a quote from, um, it may be from an, another article, but I saw it in, in, in The Wire, the David Barboza platform, 
where, where Truex said, uh, China no longer wants to be studied. <laughs> the message is pretty clear. Fieldwork, archives, even language training, it's all in jeopardy now, which kind of made my blood run, run cold. But in fact, that does seem to be the feeling that, that we get. What does it feel from your point standpoint? What's it like to be a China scholar um, in this field these days for you? It's so complicated um, because obviously for the past 18 months, travel to China has simply been a non-starter. And, you know, I, I do know a couple of people who have managed to go over for trips. Um, I have one one friend who's over there for an extended research trip right now. But for the most part, you know, most of us studying China don't have the time to be able to do an extended quarantine. So going there to do like a short archival trip, um, I'm a historian, so I'm thinking in terms of archives, but obviously like the different people in different different fields will have other purposes for going over. You know, because because I have a full-time job, if I'm able to go to China, it's only for a week or two. And so I can't extend that with a quarantine. So just from a very pragmatic level, for most of us, it has not been possible to think about doing a trip to China. But I think the big question that we're all facing is after these restrictions ease, whether that's in after the Olympics or towards the end of 2022, or early 2023, will we still feel comfortable going to China? And there was a, a China file conversation a few months ago where they did a big survey um, similar to the one that Rory and Sheena did, but a much shorter um, analysis of the level of comfort that American academics had in going to China. And it was really striking the negativity on the survey. And I responded to that one as well. I participated in the China file conversation and I was one of the people saying, I'm not really sure. And it's not that I study extremely sensitive political topics. I'm a cultural <laughs> historian. My dissertation was on child welfare. I'm writing a book about a cartoonist, albeit a political cartoonist. Um, <laughs> but I, I still don't think that I'm doing anything especially risky. I think the cases, the cases of the two Michaels, um, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spabor, who the two Canadians who were detained for simply because it seemed like they got in the they got caught in the crossfire of U.S. China Canadian relations. It wasn't necessarily because of anything specific that they had done, um, but they just you know happened to be the two people who were unfortunate enough to um, get caught by the Chinese authorities at that time. And I think that really casts a pall over the China field here in the United States. This feeling of it could be anyone, and you know to take a step back. When I was in graduate school, this was still a topic of, is it okay to write about certain things? Is it, you know, what do you change your topic to make it more palatable to the Chinese government? Like what, what's the danger? And I think that's the, from the outside, when I talk to people who are not China specialists or who are not even academics, the sense is like, you have to be really careful if you're writing about China because it, anything could get you um, put in jail. But the truth of the matter is that for the majority of the time that I've been talking about China, studying China, it seemed like the greatest danger was not getting a visa. So it was kind of, you know, that if you wrote too many things, if you studied a topic, if you were too outspoken, there was always the possibility that when you applied for a visa to go to China, you wouldn't get it. Which is certainly when this is your professional career, when you have you know very real academic 
uh, concerns pressing on you, that would be a, a big problem to not be able to go to China, to not be able to do research. But it wouldn't necessarily put me in imminent danger or result in me getting getting detained or anything like that. And so I think the idea that it's gone from, oh, maybe you won't get a visa and you have to figure out another career pathway to there is the very, very slight, but not unheard of possibility that you could wind up in a Chinese detention center for over a thousand days. I think that was the the transition that a lot of people had um, in terms of their thinking about studying China. And then also Hong Kong and the national security law and the fact that that seems so much more all-encompassing than anything we've ever seen before. Um, again, most of the time when you're dealing with the Chinese government and you're thinking about what am I writing? What am I saying? What am I doing that could get me in trouble? The lines are not clear. There are a lot of gray areas. It's not, it's not like the Chinese government sends you a letter and says, Hey, we're really, really displeased with what you're doing. Please stop it. It's that someone applies for a visa and they don't get it. And that's how they realize that they have displeased uh, Beijing in some way. Whereas the national security law really puts it out there in black and white, that these are these are the things that are OK. These are the things that are not OK. And this extends all over the world. And so, again, mm -hmm. I think there a lot of academics had the feeling of, oh, I thought it was OK if I was publishing in English in the United States, if I was giving talks in the United States. But apparently that is also a problem now under this new law. So there's just this this real sense of hesitation. And we're not really sure about going to China, even if you can get there, a lot of archives um, have been, you know, have had their access restricted and there are just fewer documents to look at. It's harder to get get into them and really see. I see Jeremiah nodding. That, yes, this is what I've been here. I haven't been in an archive in a few years at this point, but this is what I'm hearing from my colleagues. Um, and then if, if a scholar is someone who does interviews, like a political scientist like Rory or Sheena, if they're an anthropologist, there's also the concern of what could happen to your Chinese interlocutors. You know, is talking to an American academic on a sensitive topic going to get someone in trouble? And none of us as academics would ever want to do that. So I think these are all, there are a multitude of concerns from the very pragmatic to what could this mean for the people that I'm working with? And that's the real danger um, for a lot of people that they're you know, it's it's not something that they're willing to engage with. And so when we're talking about the future of academia, I think it's it's a very fraught picture. I just want to kind of jump in there because I, I want to, I mean, I, more you really have so many important points. And I, I think there's like kind of a good news, bad news part of it. The good news is I don't know if it really matters that much what people write about or talk about. Um, you know, I I think that at the end of the day, the bad news is if the government or the state wants to make a point and they choose you, they're going to find a reason no matter what you research. You could re be researching cotton candy production in, you know, rural Hebei in 1923. And if that's if your number is up, they're, they're going to find something just like they did with the two Michaels. And it doesn't have to be true. And I, so I think on the, on the one hand, Hey, study what you want, because on the other hand, it really doesn't matter because if you're the one they decide to pick, well, that's that's what it is. And I, I do think that's causing a lot of people to rethink their plans to come here to do research. And as you said, that affects early career professionals a lot more than it affects late career professionals. And there's a part of this. And I do not in any way want to minimize the, the, the risks here or the fact that there are people like the two Michaels 
who have suffered considerably because of the politics and the arbitrary detention policies of the government. However, I have noticed a lot of particularly late career academics out who, are, who are like, well, I, of course, can't go because my research is so important. I'd be like the first person they would grab. And it's almost like a competition. It's like it's a way of saying, like, well, the reason I'm not going is because I'm such a well-known person in the field. I would definitely be target number one. And there's a little bit of like peacocking going on in terms of like who would be most at risk when the reality is, and this is the really sad and, and, and reality for all of us who either here or want to come here, everybody to some extent, and maybe that risk is small, as you pointed out, but everyone is still at some kind of risk level and a higher risk level than would have been the case two years ago, five years ago, never mind, 10 years ago. Absolutely. And and I agree with you. I think um, it used to be getting turned down for a visa, which didn't, I, I never heard about that happening very, very often. It was just that it happened to a few very high profile academics. But it, it used to be that if you got turned down from, for a visa, it maybe gave you a bit of street cred in our academic community. And so now we've kind of flipped that around to, yes, the the sense of like, well, you know, there's no way I could go. Um, I agree with you about risk. And I think everyone's making a different calculation about their level of risk. And we all have entirely individual personal risk assessments. And so I think it's very important for us as a field to not not judge others um, for going to China, for doing research in China, for being willing or unwilling to go. Obviously, academics who have family in China, that's an entirely different risk assessment that you know they want to be able to go and they want to be able to see their family, but they also don't want to put their families in any jeopardy. Everyone, everyone needs to decide what level of risk they're comfortable with. And as I said at the beginning, um, I did respond to the Rory Shurex and Sheena Greiton survey. I also responded to the China File survey. My sense is I don't I don't specifically remember how I answered the uh, Truex Greitens one, but I'm pretty sure that I got more pessimistic uh, in in between answering the China file one earlier this year, because I know when I was responding to that, I did say I, I'm falling into the camp of I'm pretty sure I wouldn't necessarily go. Um, there are situations in which I would feel comfortable going. So um, if I were part of a group where I felt like I had some protection from an overarching institution. Um, and that's the other thing for me is that I am not an academic, you know, I'm not um, employed as a professor anywhere. I don't have a huge university backing me. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I would be going there mostly on my own. And my feeling is just, again, I don't really think that I'm necessarily target number one in the crosshairs of the Public Security Bureau. But if that's at all a possibility, I would never want to put my family through the experience of having me detained in China. And that's, that's simply my own personal risk assessment is that I can't, can't stand the idea of that. So Maura, have you and your colleagues discussed or do you hear people talking about self-censorship? Because that seems like that's that's the the most the most toxic aspect academically. And, you know, we have problems with the programs within China that are that are joint ventures or, or that are, are academic exchange programs. The programs Jeremiah and I and I used to do um, had that problem. Uh, they've, they've kind of gone away temporarily, but places like Duke Kunshan and uh, and New York, NYU, Shanghai, Schwartzman and Yanjing and all these programs have the 
you know, have the same problem. Uh, do you, is this a conversation that you hear among colleagues and the people at AAS that you're still in touch with? Absolutely. I hear people talking about self-censorship because it's a big concern. And that was something that came out of the uh, Truex Greitens survey, this um, feeling that there were worries about self-censorship. Um, I think there are levels of self-censorship is, yeah. what I, is what I would say, is that if someone's picking a research topic, if they're just starting from the beginning and if they're a graduate student and their advisor says, uh, I know you want to study, you know, minorities in Xinjiang, that might be a little bit of a problem now. Why don't we tweak your topic a little and not bring in the not bring in the word Xinjiang and talk about minorities somewhere else, which is still a very, a very um, touchy subject these days. But is that self-censorship or is that pragmatism? Is it just saying, mm-hmm. you know, you, you wouldn't be able to do this project? And you know, that was that was always a conversation in academia for the, the 15 years that I've been in this field is um, just concerns about what is it actually possible to do? What can you actually study? So I think there are a lot of concerns about self-censorship. Certainly, when we talk about programs like Duke Kunshan or Harvard, um, the, the Yenching Academy, things like that. There have been a couple of very high profile stories about institutions saying, oh, no, you can't have this person talk. You can't have you can't have this conversation on our campus. And, you know, it's understandable that these institutions, which are really walking a very fine line, have to figure out, you know, they're they're looking internally and saying, oh, we just feel like it's safer not to do this. It's something that everyone's talking about. I'm not sure we really have an effective way of measuring like the the true amount of self-censorship. I think what Jeremiah said earlier is true, is that, you know, you you can't really be sure of what it's going to be that will put you on on the no-go list for the Chinese authorities. You know, maybe the answer for us is you can just do what you want and and you'll within, find out. Within, yeah, you'll find out, which has always, always been right. the case. Yes. Well, I, but I have another question about the English language line. You sort of alluded to it, but for me, this is a big deal. And it, and it came up in some of what uh, I saw in, in Roy Truex's article or one of his art news stories about him, um, which is in the old days, I think uh, most of us kind of felt like that there was a, a kind of a imagino line, I guess, or some kind of a line that we had, that we didn't have to worry about. If you're, you're, you're gathering research, you're writing a book, you're writing articles, but as long as it's in English, it's in this safe English world where it's not likely to make it make its way back into China and no one's going to even know what you're writing. So you don't need to worry about it as long as your, your discourse is in English and you're on English websites and you're writing. But that's changed, hasn't it? It's it's no longer quite so obvious that that's the case. What if, what effect does psychologically does that have on you and people that are works working seemingly safely out of the country, but you're really not so not so uh, anonymous anymore? Right. So absolutely, I think what you just said is true. That was always my impression going back to again when I started um, in like 2006, 2007. The sense was if you're writing in English, that's okay. That you can say things. The idea was that it was being published for a foreign audience that not that many people within China would be accessing it, and so therefore the Chinese government didn't pay as much attention. Um, I think that's no longer necessarily the case. And again, the Hong Kong security, the national security law seems to indicate that the, the government is looking outside and is checking out what's happening in the world around, you know, what, what academic activity is happening around the world. I, I want to acknowledge I'm in a very privileged position in some sense that I 
don't have a tenure track job. So I don't have the pressure to publish. I don't have um, an institution that's expecting me to produce a certain amount of academic research. And so um, that means that I do have the freedom to write whatever I want. And again, I'm not sure how much the Chinese government is really paying attention to what I write. Um, I think because it's so impossible to know what, where those lines are and because the situation changes, you know, right now we're talking at a really pessimistic time. I'm still an opt- enough of an optimist to hope that maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe at some point in the future, you know, the situation will change again and we'll be in an upswing, like as it now appears the early 2000s were. You know, my my feeling has always been because I have the freedom of being an independent scholar that I I'm okay writing what I want to, where I want to, in the language that I want to. Um, but I completely understand that a lot of people have, you know, real professional pressures because of their their positions at institutions, and so therefore do have to be much more careful and think about what are they going to publish, where are they going to publish it, when are they going to publish it? You know, right now as we're going into a year, you know, heading into a party congress, like maybe this is a a bad time to publish something that would be considered especially sensitive. Um, but maybe afterwards, it wouldn't be quite quite such a problem. Uh, I have a question about a sort of, a, or I, let's put it this way. I, I'd like to address an issue of sort of seeing the problem as w- one at two different levels. One is the sort of top level, what we're talking about, the the uh, things like the security law or, or top down sort of legal and new policy measures that that affect academic exchange and affect uh, all kinds of academic freedom uh, at the top. So this is a political level. And then the other level, which is the, the sort of uh, one-to-one uh, grassroots or uh, one-to-one personal re- relationships with the with the actual academics and the, and the academic collaborators or cooperators on both sides. And my strong opinion, having been here, having gone back and forth and being here in the last year, is that there's still a huge reservoir of goodwill at that level, which is the people that I've worked with, the academics, they still are very much invested in in that exchange and and they're very much believe in it and want it to to keep going and hope that the the Americans can come back. And I'm saying Americans because that's the happens to be the, the group that I'm more familiar with. But and then by the same token, you know, on the American side, there's an equal sort of willingness to to get back uh, in the game. But the question is now from both people, we're looking at we're looking at this pressure from the other top, which is a very, a very objective and sort of sort of unassailable force that has both political and economic implications. If you can't get funding, you can't do it. So I'm wondering if how you how this plays out because I know you you still have contacts uh, that you've worked with your academic contacts. How does how do people feel about this? Is this is this a bunch of uh, well-intentioned academics that are just waiting for the for the uh, this sort of latest malaise to lift and so things to return it back to normal? Or do you think things have been permanently damaged by by all this? And, I agree with you. I think that at a a person-to-person level, at an individual level, once academic exchange was established between the United States and China, once scholars on both sides began to collaborate with each other on projects and to get get into these really long-term, intense research relationships working on 
on projects together, you know, how do you how do you step back from that? I don't really think that that's possible. And I I agree that I think um, even though we're now in this really fraught time, that there is a great desire on both sides to continue working with each other, to continue even if um, the approach has to change, if the level of engagement isn't at the same intensity that it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there are still a lot of academics on both sides who really want to continue working with their counterparts in the United States and China. Um, And I don't think we're going to see that go away. Again, I think we're at a period right now when everyone has to take a step back. It's, It's more fraught, but we're going to continue as much as we can and then hope, as you said, that the malaise will lift because, you know, it is important that we talk to each other, that everyone, you know, continues really engaging with each other, continues communicating with each other because we don't want to sort of calcify into the situation where U.S. academics are talking about China and Chinese academics are talking about the United States, but we're not actually talking to each other. I think that's a really problematic aspect or a problematic prospect. You know, I'm one of those people who I still believe in engagement at the person to person level. I know that engagement is this like bad word in the China field these days. And I absolutely agree. I think the idea that engagement with China would make it like a liberal democracy, um, you know, that that was never going to happen. But I think we need to talk about people to people engagement. And that is the real core of building strong U.S.-China relations and strong academic relations, because um, it's easy to talk about Xi Jinping. You know, I'm never probably never going to meet him, Um, but that's my guess. I mean, you never say never, but let's say it's unlikely. He's not really my concern. My concern is Mm -hmm. continuing to communicate with academics in China continuing to ensure that um, American students can go study in China. You know, doing study abroad in China changed my life. It was absolutely the most important thing I've ever done. And I think it's really, even if someone isn't going to take that experience and then, you know, spend 10 years in graduate school like I did, um, it's still a really important element of getting our our um, populations to know each other, you know, I I think it's still something that should be permitted, encouraged. Um, I think study abroad is, is a really important aspect. And, you know, I've worked in study abroad, you both have, this is something that I I very strongly believe in. And I would love to see more students, you know, study, um, study in China, study anywhere they want to go. You know, this is, this is something that I really want to say. Well, amen. You're you're speaking to the here. <laughs> yes. I I also think that study abroad is a really good way to rebuild these bridges. But I think one of the challenges that we're talking about is when we think about the kind of person to person exchanges, especially the kind of you're talking about more, which I agree are very important. A lot of those were done by academics who were coming to China to study about China or to study China. And I want to go back to something David said, which is that in some ways. There's resistance now to the idea of China as a subject to be studied. And I I can see two sides to this argument. On one hand, and I'm not, this is not in any way a criticism of the entire field of China studies, but I think anyone who's a reflective scholar of China knows that there's a legacy of research of Westerners researching other parts of the world in a way in the past 
that has in some ways exoticized, diminished those areas in a way that also plays into a larger narrative of kind of the global north or the domination of the West. And I think there is resistance now in China. There's an understanding, a greater understanding of how that works. And we're talking about the English language scholarship. I think more people in China, academics and politicians, are now looking at what is being written about China and they're asking questions like, why are you writing about us like that? Why are you focusing on these things? What's the agenda there? Now, of course, most academics don't have an agenda, or at least not in the way that I think a lot of these critics probably think that they do. But I also understand why the critics in China might say that, because there is that long history of kind of sonology in our field as a way of kind of being in some ways tied to a larger project that goes back to the days of colonialism. On the other hand, I also think that many of the critics in China get really aggravated when academics use these things like you know, sources and data to refute some pretty boneheaded propaganda arguments that get made. And that frustrates, you know, the uh, propaganda organs in China who are looking out the, you know, the rest of the world like, we are putting out this message that you are quickly refuting with this evil data that you have. And that, of course, frustrates them, too. So what I want to say there is I think this kind of we don't want to be studied anymore. That may also have a chilling effect on these kind of person to person exchanges. I think this is coming from two different places at the same time. One I'm somewhat sympathetic with and one I have very little sympathy for. But it is going to affect programs like the ones that David and I worked at, ex scholarly exchange programs, like the ones that you've worked at, Maura. And one of the things I think we're kind of wondering, looking at the direction that some of programs are taking right now, most prominently, but not the only one, uh, the Harvard program in Beijing, why not Taiwan? Why not Taiwan? Um, and that's, that's a real change. You know, when I was uh, looking around at study abroad in 2005, um, I graduated from college and I wanted to go study Chinese. You know, if it had been 10 years earlier, I think absolutely all of my, most of my options would have been Taiwan. There were a few programs operating in China at that time. Um, but you know, a lot of a lot of people were going to Taiwan to study. That had been the case for several decades of American scholars. And then I was really in the group where, you know, from the mid 90s onward, default was becoming going to China. And, you know, so the um, the sort of cohort that I was in. Um, I had a few, I have a few colleagues who did their Chinese language study in Taiwan, but it was much less, uh, much more unusual at that time. And the majority of us were studying in Beijing as I did. And then I moved um, down to the, the Nanjing Shanghai corridor. But I do think that we're going to see more programs um, going to Taiwan, establishing uh, centers there. I think that's great. Um, I think, you know, it, it's a very viable alternative. I would also love to see more study abroad programs that are sort of multi-sided, um, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of maybe when we're talking about study tours, thinking thematically and going to a couple of places. So looking at environment in, you know, Taiwan, a location in Southeast Asia and India or something like that. So, you know, there's a reason that I work for the Association for Asian Studies, which is that I'm interested in in many more places than just China. Um, although that's obviously the 
the real center of my my professional life. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're going to see programs getting creative. They're going to think about ways to study China without being in China. Again, this is a very um, interesting, unexpected for me personally. I didn't see this coming return to the way that things had been in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when scholars were going to Hong Kong and studying at the University Services Center and kind of being on the outside, peering into China. You know, that that's not the situation I want us to be in. I want us to be able to go to China, to travel around the country. Um, again, things have changed. I'm, I'm still nostalgic for the days of being on the, the old slow sleeper trains, you know, chugging out to Xi'an or things like that. Um, so I know that it's a different experience than the one that I had as a student, but it's it's still a really important one. And I think it's it, it's great for Taiwan because I think it had really gotten the short shrift in in students thinking about where to go to study. You know, Taiwan was always as it was for me, kind of off to the side of like, oh, yeah, I guess I could go there, too. So I think it'll be it'll be great for that to get brought back into the conversation. And what I'd like to see is that it not just be off to the side, but to be a real, you know, vibrant part of the China studies community writ large that, you know, Taiwan studies is getting increasingly stronger as an academic field. And I think that that's fantastic. And I want to see it continue. I think having programs move there will, will facilitate um, the future growth of Taiwan studies as an academic research field. Um, but I don't want us to see completely, I don't want to see us completely write off academic exchange with mainland China either. And I think the best that we can hope for is to maintain ties, not cut off communication. Again, safety is important. And I don't want to say that I'm not thinking about the safety of research counterparts in China, but to the extent possible, I think right now, what we can do is maintain communication, maintain relationships with academic colleagues, even if we're not actively engaging with them in in ongoing research projects, but just, you know, stay out there, stay in touch, say, I'm still here. And hopefully, if there's a possibility in the future, we'll work together again. So I just, as I said earlier, I don't want to see us really solidify into these two camps of the China camp, the American camp that don't talk to each other, because I, I think that that would be to the detriment of both sides. Yeah, uh, I, I think we will see that. We've already learned that there's quite a lot you can you can do online that is still worthwhile and valuable. A lot of young people don't seem to object to that at all. There may be reasons for it. I think Jeremiah raises a, a great point. Maybe China doesn't want to be studied so much anymore because of the way we had been studying it. You know, when Bill Bishop did his Farewell Seneca podcast, I was there and we were talking about the fact that, we, you know, a lot of the Sinology and the purpose of the Sinology, at least for some political scientists people, was was bian, peaceful evolution. We're doing all this to change China and we were optimistic we're, we're having an effect. And uh, Bill said, yeah, they're onto us. <laughs> They don't want that. They don't want us to change China. So I think maybe the time is that we maybe we need to change a little bit. <laughs> and uh, as, as Jeremiah hinted at, change our own awareness, our own orientation 
and our own limitations. Absolutely. And, you know, anyone who has, has read the Jonathan Spence book, To Change China, um, will know that this, <laughs> this is never, it's, no. it's a continually failing prospect. But, you know, if if a group of Chinese scholars came over to study the United States, I think they would fall, yes, you right. know, get, get the same reaction, which is that um, to change America wouldn't be very successful either. And so right. I, I agree that there have there have been problems in the way that China was studied in the past. I think it's on us as academics to really, you know, look inside, have these conversations to really, you know, to be uncomfortable with the mistakes that we've made. Um, and I think that, that it's very important for the China field to have that sort of a moment of self-reflection, um, which I've had, I know a lot of other scholars have had, and maybe we need to be more public about it to really mm. put the message out there that we are talking about the ways that China has been studied in the past. We do see the problems in what we've done, and this is what we're going to do to move forward into a more productive relationship in the future. Maura, thank you so much for, for your time, and uh, it's been so great talking to you. I hope we can get you on the podcast again in the very near future, because I think these are definitely issues that are not, uh, they're going to be with us for some time. And I think when COVID, when we get into a post-COVID era, which in China may be a little bit longer than some other places, I think it's going to be a good time to, to really kind of have a, a strong consideration of what the future of exchanges, academics, study abroad, all of these things will look like. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. And thanks, David. Thanks, David. Thank you, Jeremiah. See you next week.